Hey guys, glad that you could join us today. Today's guest, very young entrepreneur, after already being in the corporate world and uh, making a name there really quickly. And one of the things that he realized was the power of communication coming through school. Uh, the, the skills that he picked up would take him into the corporate world and would end up breaking him out into, uh, into the entrepreneurial space and in the area of communication. Today on the show, Brendan Kumarasamy. Uh, leadership to wealth, guys. So glad to have you with us today. On today's show, we have Brendan Akumarasamy, who is the founder and owner of uh, Master Talk, and he's going to share with us uh, all the a lot of the things that brought him to this point. And I'm so glad to introduce him to you guys, uh, Brendan. Thank you for coming on the show today. Of course, Neil. It's such a pleasure to be on. So, Brendan, uh, just to get us started for the for the viewers, uh, you know, you can you give us a little bit of background just with, um, you know, born, raised, um, you know, grew up this kind of stuff and and into kind of uh, what you're doing now. Just give us a quick synopsis of of you. Yeah, of course. Happy to know. So my parents immigrated from Sri Lanka in the early 90s. I was born a, a few years shortly after that in Montreal. Born and raised my entire life in Montreal. And I would say with the catalyst for what I ended up doing in life, pretty much started when I was five years old. For for those of you who don't know, Montreal is an odd city where you need to know to speak English and French to do business here, to make relationships, to get jobs, to do well in the city. So my parents, of course, made one of the, probably one of the best decisions in their life with me, which was to send me to French school. Brent, you need to learn the language. And... Obviously, that, that's great. I'm grateful for it. I speak French. But at the time, I struggled a lot because my whole life, not only was I uncomfortable with presenting and sharing ideas, I didn't understand French. I would speak in a language I didn't know. And that's uh, that, I guess, is a summary. And that's what led to Master Talk after probably a, two decades later. Probably. <laughs> wow. That okay. So that was brilliant in terms of a, a quick synopsis. Uh, but that that's really interesting. You you're you were born in Montreal, and and you started learning French right away. But yet there was still some difficulty there. You got it. So I'll give you a bit more context. Usually nobody asks yeah. me about that, so I'm glad you put it up. So I learned English uh, when I was two or three years old, you know, because my parents put me in a daycare. So that's how I learned and picked up the language, even if my parents weren't that great. So my first language was actually English, right? But when, when my parents sent me to French school when I was probably five or six years old, I didn't have any knowledge of French. So I was kicking and screaming. I was like, I don't want to go to French school. I know how to speak English. Like, let me... And I was telling this to them in English. And they said, no, you got to learn the language. So that's where the, the challenge came from. Okay. So that's really interesting because my, my family is East Indian and um, uh, pretty much from Mumbai. But they... Uh, when... So my brother grew up learning Hindi and then and English. Uh, but for me, being here, they were they would speak English all the time. And the only time that they would uh, that they would speak Hindi was when they would um, 
when they didn't want us to know what we were talking about, what they were talking about, right? So I got a lot of that too. Yeah, so it's, so I pretty much uh, got English right from the get go, and then um, a bit of French in school. But it was uh, it was interesting because at home there was also this the mother tongue that would get in there, and I just know a little bit of, about languages in that um, there's something about the cadence that um with the different languages that you just learn to pick up naturally when if your parents are speaking that from the get-go and now why in the world am i talking about this because you're the master communicator you're the one that that teaches people uh, about this stuff did did that um what you learned there in terms of being thrust into french did that have anything did that play any role in in you eventually getting into communication or and learning anything about it? Yeah, it's a great question, man. I, I think what I would say is it gave me a lot of perspective okay. from a lot of individuals where second language was English. So I'll give you a classic example, right? South Asian from India immigrates to Montreal, needs to learn how to speak English and work in the corporate world or in the setting, but English is not their first language. It's Hindi, it's Telugu, it's Tamil, it's yeah. or yeah. Right. So I, I understood it from that lens because I grew yeah. up speaking a second language, which was French in my case. Yeah. But in terms of the link between master talk, now I never thought I was going to become a communication coach. Like when I was 12, you know, that yearbook they have after elementary school. So everyone's got, you know, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be like a, an entrepreneur. You know what mine said? Mine said, I want to be an accountant. It's like, yeah, I'm really, I was really yeah. good at math. Woo. And you're, I mean, you're clearly in the finance business. Just, you're really good at math, but I was a lot worse than you. I was exceptionally good at math and terrible at everything else. So the, the option was really easy for me to make. Wow. Your, your parents clearly, uh, you were clearly loved by your parents. I mean, if you were, if you, if you were all about accounting, so, uh, so that works. Um, for those of you that are watching, you, you know, if you're from, any part of Asia, um, you, your parents are pretty much going to uh, stress the need to go into either becoming a lawyer, doctor, engineer, uh, accountant, or something of, oh, of the like. Oh, forgot right? the fifth option, Neil, which is loser. Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but that that they don't tell you that one. But I, actually, you know, maybe I can. I can show. Have you have you been back home um, to uh, you know? to Sri Lanka since since moving here? So I went once. I went once yeah. in 2003. So I was like eight or nine years old. It was a long time yeah. ago. So yeah. I have to come back again next year or something like that. <laughs> well, I'll, I, I share that because I learned something interesting from my last trip in uh, 2018. In 2018, I went back. And one of the things uh, I that I got, because there is a, a lot of pressure from... Uh, from our parents to really be, you know, that you've got to be this and you've got to excel at this and this is the way that it is. And uh, I remember it being difficult for me because if that's how all Indians are, they're all exceptional, they're all amazing. Well, I'm clearly, I'm clearly a loser. <laughs> yeah, like, because I'm never going to meet that bar. And when I went back in 2018, and um, as an adult, you know, kid, wife, kids, everything, and going back and and looking, and going, oh, there there are people that that are losers here too. 
uh, apparently we didn't make an entire race of, of, uh, world dominating winners. Um, it, it, but it, it's funny how in the mind of a child, when you, when you mentioned that about being a loser, that I set the bar for myself against all these people that I didn't even, an entire race of people that I didn't really even come in contact with on a regular basis. So it, it's interesting just to hear you share a little bit about that. I, I don't know if there's anything you'd want to comment on that, but. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, th thanks for sharing that. Deal. Like I completely agree. You know, I think, I think our upbringing can teach us a lot, especially yeah. like going into our roots and who we are and how we grew up. And then how do we leverage that to end up doing what we, we, we do later in life. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to come back to that one. All right. So uh, went to school. You wanted to be an accountant and uh, you're studying in Montreal. And uh, and then you go on to uh, to get into uh, the business world. Now, uh, did you start in as an accountant? Yeah. So essentially what happened, Neil, and, and maybe the context would help people too. The reason why I was so passionate about having a corporate job, like I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was never, I'm like the quintessential anti-entrepreneur. I thought entrepreneurship was for people who couldn't get six figure corporate jobs. I was like, why would you want that? So when I went to university, I was 19 when I started at Concordia in Montreal. I wanted to get a job at one of the big four accounting firms, Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, EY, or KP. Yeah. And I obviously did not know what that was. Somebody just told me I needed to get a job at those companies. But you know, yeah. I thought I thought PricewaterhouseCoopers was a water bottling company. That's how lost I was. It was kind of funny. But anyways, so so I get there, I get this great job. And what ends up happening is while in university, I start doing these things called case competitions. So yeah. think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So other guys my age were playing football or rugby or cricket, I guess, or something else. What yeah. I did with my time is I did presentations competitively. <laughs> so th this is like a real thing. Or like <laughs> I literally, I know it's bizarre. But I, I, I was watching one of your oh. interviews where you're talking about uh, that. And I was like, man, that that's actually, I'm sure it must have seemed awkward at the time, but it actually is brilliant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and since you're Canadian, this is going to be an easy conversation with you in particular. Literally, there's a competition in Toronto, yeah, like right next to you, where York University, Wilfrid Laurier, our right. school, Miguel, a bunch of them, we come in like right. flocks of 50 students per school. And yeah. there's like, I mean, before COVID, obviously. And there was yeah. like 700, 800 people at yeah. like Brock University. And we'd all compete in like the Business Olympics. Right? We call them Commerce Games. But that it was like serious stuff. Like yeah, I was, and, yeah. and that's how I developed accidentally the art of speaking and teaching other people how to speak. That's kind of how all that happened. I I think it's brilliant. Um, you know, there are, you know, my kids are just starting to get to that age where they're they're getting into post secondary, and um, and I actually think that's that that's brilliant in the sense that here you were picking up not even knowing, but you're picking up skills that now you can look back and go, oh my goodness, how amazing it is that, that I was doing that and the skills that you've picked up. Were, did you, were you aware at all that you were picking up these skills? Mm, definitely, but maybe not in the context that you're thinking. So not in the sense okay. that, oh, Brennan had everything figured out. This skill is going to lead to this skill. It's going to lead to this skill, like yeah. this master. I remember I was 20 at the time, right? 
But what I did do that could be a good nugget for people is for me, I'm a big fan of not reinventing the wheel. Copy okay. other human beings' success. Yes. Why yeah. should I just go and run on the streets, you know, half naked and run around and try and figure stuff out versus just going, okay, Neil is successful. He's done really well in his space. He's a Canadian guy, same ethnicity. I can probably learn something from him. If he figured it out, yeah. I'd probably figure it out too. Yeah. So in that lens, what I did, but in the context of corporate and then later to mass talk after was, okay, I need a corporate job. That's what my desire is. That's what will retire my mom. That's what will get me out of poverty for sure. And yeah. that's what it did basically. Yeah. So I looked at the people who had internships at Deloitte, who had internships at McKinsey, because I was looking at consulting jobs too. And I said, what is on CV? Case competitions, mm -hmm. student involvement, high GPAs. They knew people who worked there. They had relationships. So I looked at every single person. I talked to Lily. I'm just throwing out random names. She was like, oh yeah, you need to have a great personality, great GPA. And I just kept talking to all these people, Neil. And I became the sum of all of those people. So I started copying their accomplishments so that when I would get into the recruiting process a few years later, I would be the perfect candidate. That's amazing. And and were you the perfect candidate? In the context of corporate, since you ask, I guess I'll answer honestly, which was yes. I mean, I was not the student yeah. who had D's and F's. Yeah. I was definitely the student who has A's and B's, right? And B's yeah. were unacceptable. So yeah. because of that, you know, like, you know, when I was in university, I always used to tell people I was the world's best number two. Like, I'm, mm. I'm never going to be a CEO. I'm going to be a chief operating officer at a company, a chief financial officer at a company. So for me, I was like clear cut for corporate. I got, I got the job at Pricewaterhouse and I was 19 and a half or something. And, you know, when I decided to leave, accounting to pursue a job in management consulting. You know, I got a very great job at, at IBM in their consulting division right out of university. You know, I was probably one of the youngest guys in the consulting division. So yeah, it did work out well because I copied everyone else's success. <laughs> what so let me ask, what was the what was the drive behind that? Like why why accounting? Why uh chief financial officer, operating officer? What what was the drive behind that? That uh, I, I mean, the the idea is always nice to everybody, to to all of us when we're young, to to be something like that. But but as you know, there's you have to have a certain drive to uh, to be able to get through that and do all of those things that you did. Can you speak to that at all? Oh, absolutely happy to. I mean, there, there, so that's what's interesting what you're asking, Neil, because human beings are always motivated by different things. I don't know if you had the chance to look at Michael Jordan's documentary on Netflix. It's called The Last Dance. If not, yeah. definitely check. Oh, you have. Okay, awesome. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. So in, in Jordan's case, what was fascinating when I was studying him in that documentary is he was obsessed with competition. That's what motivated him. It was the idea of, I need to be against an, another person. And it was yeah. interesting in the last scene of The Last Dance, the, the last question was, do you have any regrets? And the only thing that he said is we should have went for seven. And we didn't. I didn't understand. I was like, what does he mean by seven? And he meant seven championships. And I thought that was yeah. so interesting, yeah. right? A guy who has billions of dollars can literally access pretty much any human being. Isn't that weird? You can talk to any human being you want. Through the click of a bell. If you want to meet Leonardo DiCaprio, you can have lunch with him tomorrow. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And yet, his only regret in life 
was that he didn't go after seven championships. So everyone's motivated by different things. And you obviously know this. So in my case, I would say it's a mix of different things. Definitely competition fires me up. I love going up against other people. I love comparing myself to other people in that notion. I feel it's very motivating because you're always looking at, man, Neil's really good. I want to be better. So let's let's focus on it. But a lot of that was also my father. Right. You know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family and, you know, I didn't I didn't have a lot of money growing up. Times yeah. were really hard. My mom had to go back to work and, you know, he wasn't um, un, he was unemployed for the last probably seven years of his life. So I yeah. always loathed him. I never liked mm-hmm. him. And because of that, it was also a driving force for what I ended up doing in life because I always wanted to beat him. I always mm-hmm. wanted to say, no, I can totally make it because I really wanted to retire my mom. And that was another driving force. So it was a mix of both of those. I would say it's my dad and competition. It's probably the the two. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things. That's probably the summary. Wow, that that's really interesting. In that, um, I, I mean, I, I've shared many times uh, on my podcast about m- my dad being an alcoholic and and uh, the chaos uh, in my home and and what that created. And in my case, it. I, I instead developed this thing of, you know what, I can't, I'm never going to be good enough. And instead, I found mentors and the mentors I found were on the streets of Scarborough um, in the hood. And, um, and so I got into a lot of things that um, I quite frankly, I was, I was fortunate that I never went to jail for. Um, and, and then later on in life, realized just a, a whole nother drive and uh, inside there. So it's interesting to hear uh, your, what you're saying and to see how that that kind of drove you to being, you know, the, the, the issues with your dad. I mean, at, at, the, at a base, we all have different things from when we grow up that really drive us. And, and you can see the competitive drive that was there as a result. And, and how that motivated you. Now, was that something that you found, uh, like in some people that actually can sit as sort of resentment and um, and kind of eat at them? Would you Could you say something about that? Of course. You can ask me anything, man. No worries. Yeah. But the, okay. the other piece is kind of as a funny side note. It's, it, I was kind of laughing when you were talking about how there was the, you were in the hood in Scarborough. I was like, really? They have a hood in Scarborough? <laughs> so yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious, but but yeah. the the point about my I, I mean I, I don't yeah, think it's ahead. really there now, but back in the day, <laughs> <laughs> I just found that so hilarious. Yeah, and 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 to your question, Neil, you know, I think what I would say is you're absolutely right. I feel a lot of us, and myself included, by the way, we yeah. hold on to resentment for so long, and it eats yeah. at us. Right, just yeah. to give you like, since we're having a real conversation here, I would say the last seven years until he passed, I, we lived in the same house, never talked to. Not even once. Wow. I just pretended he didn't exist. Yeah. Right. But what I will say is that resentment was a gift in the early days. I'm not going to lie. Right. That's mm-hmm. what, like in the sense that like it drove me, but it's short lived. Yeah. It's short lived. And yeah. I, and there was this, I'll give you a quick point on this. So I remember when, when he passed a few days before I, I read this quote and I was sitting down in some emotional intelligence workshops, I sit down and I look at the front and there's like this big banner. And the banner had a question. And it was the most difficult question I've ever seen in my life. And the question was, what are you pretending not to know? What are you pretending not to know? 
So I sat there and I was like, huh. By the way, it's very humbling that you're taking notes when I'm talking. But anyways, <laughs> what are you pretending not to know? So I thought about this answer a lot, Neil. And the answer that I came up with when I was being honest with myself, because it forces you to be, was I was pretending not to know that my father was the greatest gift of my entire life. Wow. Right? If it wasn't for him, I never would have started my life in Canada. I would have started in Sri Lanka. And God knows what would have happened if I started there with an accent. I probably wouldn't have been able to have this nice, smooth voice for master talk that I do today. That's one. The second thing that I learned was if it wasn't for that push on that competitive spirit, I never would have became the high performer that I am today. I mean, it's kind of crazy where I'm at now. I, I kind of pinched myself, like 25. I'm doing all these crazy things. If it wasn't for that drive, I wouldn't have gone there. And the third piece was definitely the first 10, 15 years. If he didn't provide for me fan financially when he was okay, before he got kind of everything spiraled out of control, say the after the first 10 years of my life, it spiraled out of control, I wouldn't have been alive. Like I wouldn't have made it to that point where I could take care of myself. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think the day that I realized that he was my greatest step, uh, gift, I'm not saying the resentment went away for like 100%. Oh yeah, I'm cured. Like, no, but it, it went away enough where I could forgive him. And I think wow. that's the key. Wow, that that's amazing. Um, and if I could just acknowledge you for that, um, just not to be condescending, but rather as someone who it took many, <laughs> many more years <laughs> to to be able to see that and to um you know i i did the, i compartmentalized all of it that that resentment i just kind of put it there and um and thought that i dealt with it it wasn't until uh i was much older than you that then i started looking at it and going mm, okay hang on a second i haven't really let that one go and um and it's only when i realized by looking at those situations that there was still that emotional charge there was still that pain and i love what you what you just said there is that realizing that it is was actually your greatest gift and um and it becomes a power source does it not absolutely and, and you know i'm glad you mentioned that's very kind of you neil to say but the other piece as well is how did i come to that conclusion at such a young age how did i figure that out yeah. quicker? great and, great and question the, and the and the answer by the way I, i'm just gonna let you ask questions <laughs> questions I'll, I'll sit i'll sit here and i'll make notes all right <laughs> <laughs> no but but what you said was super key is you know you said like let's say your mid-40s whatever the age was you woke mm -hmm. up and you said hey you know what this is not serving me but, you know, for me, if it wasn't for mentors like you, I wouldn't have figured that out either. I probably would have waited until my mid-40s. For, for me, your equivalent was a guy that you probably are familiar with, Shamath Paliapatiya, who's the founder of – right. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, oh, my God. Right? So he, he is very open about, you know, his dysfunctional family. And I listened to a Stanford talk. This is 2015 when he, like he left Facebook a few years ago. He started Social Cab. And he, he was talking about the dysfunction and the book that he read and he recommends, it was like, I forgot the, the title of the book was, but basically what he said was it was because of that resentment that it ruined his, his, his 40s, despite how successful he was at Facebook, despite his stock being worth like ridiculous amounts of money. He just said like, look, I, he, he lost himself pretty much. He only just started finding happiness like probably three years ago, which is insane given the level of success he's had with his life. But here's the here's where the rubber meets the road there, Neil. 
a lot of us can listen to that story, bypass it, and then go, okay, let's let's just make the same mistake. I'll give you an easy analogy, and then we'll go back to Shimon. It's kind of like the whole idea with the musicians, right? Where every musician seems to get into a band, get really successful, get lost in women and drugs, the band breaks up, and then they have a redemption concert. Look, it always happens. It's always that exact five steps. Yet nobody sits back and asks the most important question, which is, what mistake have they made that I shouldn't be making? Like, if we can avoid mistakes, let's... You know the whole thing about failure being a good thing? No, no, no. If you can avoid failure, avoid it. Like, why are we making those mistakes? So I looked at Shimat's life, and I asked myself a question, which I felt he was asking me, is, do you want to waste 20 years of your life like I did, Brendan? Or do you want to just get straight to the punchline? Right, and I and I chose the second. So if you're young or someone who's younger than and you, you're making these mistakes, always ask yourself when you look at your mentors, don't idolize them, but do something better than that, which is put them on the same level as you. If you had to give them feedback, what feedback would you give them? If you had to analyze their life and go, what are the mistakes that they've made that I shouldn't be making? You'll get a lot more out of podcast episodes like this and information that you're consuming in general. Wow. That's uh, that's really intense. Um, <laughs> hey, yeah. Wyatt told me this is a pretty intense show, so I'm bringing the intensity. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I um, look, we're we're completely good with going in whatever direction and as however deep that you you want to talk. Um, it's part of leadership, I believe, is vulnerability, is being able to. Uh, see those lessons, see those life lessons, see those failures, and be able to pass that on coming from the hood in Scarborough, uh, not having so mentors, right? Really? Not having the mentor. Actually, uh, yeah, I did have mentors. They were drug dealers, uh, right? They were drug dealers. They were, uh, uh, you know, in gangs. These these were the people that I saw succeeding. Um, and And so what was the level of knowledge and wisdom that I was getting was that, right? And so now here we are, and I, I love what you're sharing because this gives the opportunity for um, for men of any age to be able to take that and, you know, be able to make changes because we've got this medium to be able to uh, pass on this this wisdom and knowledge. And so I, I think that's uh, that's amazing even to hear you say, oh, yeah, I saw... I, I saw this billionaire talking about his pain and um, and I started learning from that. That's a, that's amazing. Can I ask, was there something that when you saw, when you heard him talking about that, that you said, I want to listen to or something that allowed you, gave you access to be able to go into this pain, this resentment that, that was there? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think for me, a good way of thinking, and let me know if, if I didn't answer it. I mean, he is brown uh, and he is, uh, you know, um, from from uh, our part of the world. So um, maybe maybe there's something there. But but can you is there something else that you can say, you know what, there was something here that gave me access? Absolutely. And, and you're definitely on the right track there, Neil. So the, yeah. the way that one of my mentors, Andy Enriquez, explains this he says in the world there, there there's a certain amount of people who are assigned to you and what he means by that is even if a 10 different people say the same thing 
it'll resonate with 10 completely different people, right? So if you're a black woman in upstate New York, you'll resonate with a certain type of person. If you're a brown 25-year-old living in his mom's basement in Montreal, you're going to resonate with a different type of person. So the goal is not to figure out why aren't people resonating with the message, but rather saying who's already resonating and why are they resonating? And the best way to figure this out from somebody who's listening to a podcast is you want to play the filtering game. You want to listen to a bunch of different perspectives and lean deeply into the people that you're the most excited about. So for example, since me and you are Canadian, but you have similar backgrounds and we pretty have a very similar personality, right? We tend to lean more into each other, right? So right. just triple down on that versus just going around the place and jumping around. So same thing with Shamath. I, I, Shamath is just someone I want to be, right? I was super passionate about startups. I used to be a venture capitalist when I was younger. I, you know, helped invest in a lot of startups and it was so it was super. Wait, hang on. When you were right? younger, how much younger can you get? Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was like a student run. So in Canada, okay. there's a, there's a, there's a venture fund called Real Ventures. And you might be familiar since you're in the finance space. But anyways, so they invest in tech startups and they have a student run fund that's around half a million dollars. And students actually invest the money out of that fund. So I was a, I was a, I was a VC. It was kind of one of my career options after I graduated university. But the reason I mentioned that is because I studied startups intensely because I used to rip apart. I still do. But I, I rip apart a lot of pitch decks, like when people in, go for money and invest for, for capital. So Shamath was, of course someone I followed because his thought leadership, the way he thinks, I'm a huge fan of his podcast called All In. You know, I'm just, I just like listening to his perspective. People like Vinod Kosla, you know, just, just people in general that I just admire. But in the same way we admire Shamath, there's probably going to be a bunch of people who don't, who are like, who's this brown guy? Like, I don't want to listen to this guy. Yeah. But the point is, is find as many, I, I call them, Seth Godin calls them heroes. So a mentor is someone that guides you that you get to meet in your life. So we might get a chance to meet because we live in the same country nearby. But a hero is somebody that you assume is your mentor, but you never get to meet. Think Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, right? Elon Musk. So always ask yourself, if you were them, what would you do? But for all of us, those people will be different. So Shamat mm -hmm. was essentially that person for me because he had the success I wanted. Yeah, that's, uh, that's brilliant. One, one of the things I loved uh, about Shamath was that he talks about uh, always knowing what you're working for. The the key is capital and w whether it's human capital or financial capital. And so he always breaks that down, being intentional and uh, when it, from a business uh, standpoint. And I, I love his clarity in his message, uh, you know, almost unfiltered, uh, unfiltered without uh, without having to um, lower the the level of content. Right. Like he gives it all to you straight out and and just puts it out there and so uh i find it really interesting and uh i think i'm a nerd uh like you apparently because i just found what you said extremely sexy when you talked about ripping apart um decks and uh <laughs> and and looking at them i'm like ooh, that sounds exciting i wonder what you've learned in that process just just for personal curiosity what what kind of stuff have you learned in doing that and ripping apart decks Oh, so many, brother. So many. We could have a whole yeah. podcast just on that. But uh, let me give you the context as well. So yeah. what happened? So when I when I started in VC, I was a student VC. 
Yeah. You know, for me, if there's anything I learned from other venture capitalists is you should never give give advice if you've never been there. So like for me, I never give advice on how to run a business or how to do a mm. startup. That's never my thing. But when it comes to how somebody communicates an idea, how someone communicates their thought process, I saw a big gap in the market. Not really big, but uh, I think not market, but skill gap where I saw a lot of these superstars, like really strong people who are technical founders, really good at product, understood how to build technology startups, but were so bad at communicating their tech stack, their technology in a way that somebody who doesn't know anything about what they're doing can grasp the concepts of what they're building, why they're building it, why it's important. So my specialty when I was a part of Front Row Ventures is I would go through startup pitch decks and I would just rip them apart. And there's a couple of things that stand out to me. I'll give you three main ones. There's probably 50, but I'll give you three main ones. I'd say the number one key takeaway, the biggest mistake founders make is they don't communicate their point of view as a founder enough in their pitch. So for example, if we think about, let me give an example, like Airbnb, right? So when Brian Chesky pitches Airbnb, obviously a lot of people have tried this before right? VRBO, home away, like why are strangers going to live with each other at scale? But Brian really understood with that business is that design led solutions that build trust between the buyers and the sellers of the marketplace is what scales the software. So what Airbnb got right is to say, no, a lot of people want to sleep in each other's homes and pay each other money for it, but you need to develop a system that automates trust where both sides of the marketplace, the person who's giving the home, the person who's visiting the home, trust each other enough where the transaction volume goes up tremendously. So that's an example of a thoughtful founder point of view. Whereas when a founder who's getting started, who's, you know, whether they're raising money to a restaurant or whether they're raising the money for a, a technology startup, when they get started in that life cycle, they're new, they're fresh, they're just building the product for the first time, they're first-time entrepreneurs. When investors start like literally bulleting questions at them, there's a lot of questions they haven't thought of. So they go, uh, you know, uh, let me get back to you on that. Let me go. So at some point, there's so many holes and they're just like completely knocked out. So the first point is to really get clear on your founder perspective. So now how do you do that? The best way to do that, in my opinion, is an exercise I call question drills. So question drills is essentially where you take the five worst people in your network, like the five like meanest right people and literally have them just, their only goal is to break you. That is the only goal in the question drill. Neil, did you think about this? Okay, what did you just think about your cash flow? I don't agree with your statement of cash flows, blah, blah, blah. Like they just break everything. So after four hours, you're bulletproof. Like there isn't anything that I, you can be asked. Think of this podcast. The reason I'm comfortable communicating, it's not because Brendan's special. It's because Brendan's about so many podcasts that he can answer any question. Because people aren't asking about my favorite colors. Yes. So that's yes. the second thing. And then the third thing I would say, hmm, I would say the third piece is knowing how to communicate progress effectively as an entrepreneur. So a lot of a lot of pushback I get from, from early stage people is they say, well, Brendan, I just started my business. How am I supposed to communicate what I'm doing? I don't have any customers. I don't have this. I don't have that. I was like, don't focus on what you don't have communicate what you do have. So this is a mindset I teach people is whenever you're raising capital, it's not about, hey, Neil, could you please give me money? No, that's the worst way to approach it. You don't have status. You don't have a position of power in that pitch. The way you want to think about it is exactly what Mark Zuckerberg, when he raised his first round at Facebook, because he's got some like hoodie on, 
he's at Sequoia Capital. He's like, you know what, guys? You don't want to give me money. I don't really give a shit. I got like 50 other firms who want to give me money. <laughs> Do you see it? Like I got, I got 15 minutes here. So the way you want to think about it always as a founder, I don't care if you got one customer, zero or 10,000, is always have the perspective that this is a rocket ship that's taking off regardless of whether you're giving me money. So you have a decision today. Are you going to be the one who's smart enough to write me that check or not? And if you're not smart enough, we're clearly not good partners. Obviously, you don't say that directly. That's what you're thinking. So what does that mean? That means when you're communicating traction, that's what we call it in the investor space, or progress, you want to communicate it as, as badly as possible, as much as you can. So if it's, we started the company in January, we built our first MVP in April, you're still telling the investor somewhere, which is, hey, in only three months, we already built our first product. We're moving. Things are moving. So try and make a list of all the wins and yeah. communicate that more in your pitch. Those would be the top three things. Wow. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love it. Um, <laughs> being in finance, I I get into these and I, I've never had them as a structure uh, written down like this. I Obviously, I have done a lot of these things. I, I do a lot of these things uh, on a subconscious level. I just automatically go to it and I'm like, oh, look at that. Um, rapid fire questions. And I actually have a, a friend of mine. I'll give a shout out to uh, Jody Fleck. Jody, I call him uh, Hawkeye, like from uh, Marvel. And uh, and I tell him, you know, just come at me. Ask me all the questions, all the all the things that you think are wrong. And I'll usually ask different people whenever we're looking, uh, looking at different deals. And I'll say, you know, ask me all the questions so that I've gone through all of that, just like you said, that that's, it's a brilliant way to, because then in that scenario, you actually look at it and go, oh, do, is this actually a good deal? Does this actually work? Is there something else I need to address? Well, let me go back and address it and then come back and, and see where you go from there. And, um, and that's, uh, that's a vital uh, part of it. Now it's, interesting and perhaps you can even give me some feedback on this and i'm gonna throw this out to you is that when i then communicate it out what i like to do is i like to i like to give all of the bad stuff okay here's all the stuff that you know uh, worst case scenario let me let me give you all of that and um and then if you're good with that and then i can go on to any of the good stuff um and now I think some of that has got to do with perhaps training a lot of my investors and people that invest with me is mm. I never want to hide that stuff. Let's talk about all the worst stuff, all the bad things that can happen. Let's get into all of that stuff, because if you're OK with that, then the rest is all wonderful rather than let me tell you all the the uh, brilliant stuff. Um, any thoughts on that? First of all, very humbling that you're asking me the question, given your success in the industry. But here's what I would say. I would say the key is really, and you got this correct, in my opinion, which is speaking the language of your industry. Yeah. right? So as you get more and more advanced in pitching, like you're very specialized now in finance, so you do really yeah. well in that space. It makes sense what you're doing because you're getting the result, the outcome. So for me, to keep things simple, pitching is about an outcome. right? If you get the outcome, I have no feedback. You're successful. You got the outcome. Yeah. But if you didn't get the outcome, which is most of the time in the space that I was talking to earlier, why aren't we why aren't we hitting the bullseye on this? Why aren't people yeah. giving us money? 
So one thing that comes to mind is a theme, not really specific to you, because you're, you're getting the outcome. So there's not really any feedback, but more in the sense of as a principle to help people think about this is prioritization is everything, right? So prioritization okay. means you got all this information. So now the key is how do you order it in the right way so that you get buy-in from your investors in the shortest period of time? So I'll yeah. give you an example in the context that I can speak on, which is technology startups. And that's my lane is whenever you're pitching in that area, what the venture capitalist is really looking for is, do I see your product working? Like, forget about your advisors, yeah. forget about like your, your team. Do, like, I don't care what the team is like, unless, unless you're the founder of uh, Amazon, right? Unless you've already exited a startup, which in that case, you don't pitch, you just ask for money and they just give you a check, but which is a different yeah. thing. But the other piece is more, Okay, do I see this working? So at the yeah. beginning of your pitch, let's say in that context, I wouldn't start with risk management, which is what you alluded on. I would start more in the sense of what's the problem that you're solving for? What's the solution, right? And, and why is it different? Why is this important? How does it work? And getting people convinced of that idea first. And after that, you pretty much have 80% of the game won. Whereas with most people in, who are especially technical founders in the tech space, they don't get those three things right. They go, here, look at my code. Look at all the things I've built. I was like, dude, like nobody cares about what you're building if it doesn't actually solve a problem in the marketplace. So you need to focus on that first. The, what's the business case for this? And then you can go into your technical stuff later just so they can prove that you know what you're talking about from a technical lens. But that's not the priority. So, so the key word here is figure out your industry. Figure out where you're pitching and understand the priorities of your stakeholders, the people you're raising money for, the people you're enrolling mm -hmm. into your vision. And the best way to do that is a simple question. Take them out to dinner, actual dinner, like not some uh, like figurative, and ask them straight up, if you were to communicate my ideas, what would you change and why? How would you communicate them differently? What do you think is missing? Ask them questions and you'll get insights and then you can reuse their own answers against them. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> that That is uh, that is a great, uh, you know, I don't really want to use the word tactic, but it's if, if it comes from a place of humility and uh, commitment, even to to these people, then you're going to be able to literally learn from that and and address all of the the actual concerns that are there, which oftentimes people just try to avoid those and hope that, you know, let, I can talk enough. I love that you you get into you keep using the word communicate as opposed to to just talking, because oftentimes I think people will talk just to try to ram something through just to try to get through something hopefully they don't catch what i'm actually saying or they don't get into that whereas when when you keep referencing communication communication really is, is a, about a two-way wouldn't wouldn't you agree i completely agree and i think yeah. what the founders who are successful in the outcomes whether it's raising capital inspiring employees to join their company getting customers what they understand is that you need to speak the language of the people you're trying to convince, not the language you want to use. So let's say somebody wants to get on your podcast and they go, look at me, Neil. This is me. Listen, I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I've been featuring all these things. Like, who cares, man? Versus, hey, Neil, what's your show? What are you trying to build here? What's your goal? And then you say what the goal is. And I go, 
and then I then I put myself in that. Okay, that's the goal. This is how what I have is related to the goal that you have. So this is speaking the language of the person you're trying to convince. Whereas most of us, for some reason, whenever we're speaking, we're only trying to convince ourselves in the hopes that we'll convince other people. And that's never going to work. <laughs> well, if you can't convince yourself, you're never going to convince anyone else. But... <laughs> <laughs> but but let me ask you, does does this work uh, when trying to uh, uh, when trying to meet somebody, when trying to pick up somebody? <laughs> yeah are you able to use it okay go to your buddies and go through the rapid fire questions hey this is what i want to is there um i i make jest of that but in in terms of we're talking about communication and the ability to communicate and i know there's a lot of different areas and and i actually want to bring this one up because as a guy who grew up before the internet the there was no texting. There was none of these things. You had to, if you wanted to meet somebody, you had to flat out go and talk to them. And um, and I actually see from when I've I've talked to many people, guys that are younger, guys that are at your age, and they're like, they have no idea how to have a conversation with a woman. They would rather pitch uh, a deck looking for money than have to try to talk to a woman and... Um, you know, find out if she wants to go on a date or something like that or wh whatever, have a conversation. <laughs> Interesting spin. So, so here's what I would say is it's hilarious. <laughs> so a cu couple of things, right? I, I think if you're a man, I mean, you're the, there, you're the communication expert. So now we're just going to move into a totally different type of communication. <laughs> so I, I will add a caveat, definitely not my lane of expertise, but I can definitely comment on it. And, and you're, what I, you're not Hitch. You're not uh, Will Smith, the, the love doctor. Not. I got to, I got to rewatch that movie. It's been so long since I've seen it. I think it's like 2002 or something. It's, yeah, it's That's back super there. old. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, you're good. But uh, it's, honestly, it's a miracle that I even know what you're talking about. So there you go. <laughs> my, my bad. My bad. Dating myself. All right, go no, for I'm it. I'm kidding, man. But what, what I would say there okay, is just to understand what the mindset is. You know, for me, I think what's fun is volume solves everything. You know, it's weird. Mm. Volume solves everything. Most things, not everything. Okay. But there's definitely exceptions. Okay. If you can't close a deal. Okay, look at your top of funnel. How many deals you got in the pipeline? Well, if you got five, we got a problem. If you got a hundred, you're not too stressed out. If you're pitching one podcast, you're probably you're like, oh man, I really hope that person says yes. But if you pitch a thousand, yeah. like it doesn't really matter. Because if 20 of them say yes, well, you're like, shit, I got 20 podcasts and I got to turn down a couple because I'm busy. Right? So yeah. so top of yeah. funnel, right? Volume solves everything. And with women, I would say it's something very similar in the sense that. If your goal is just to intentionally date people, I think that's the wrong approach. I think for me, and this is what I apply to relationships in general, and, I, and it applies in the, in the context of your question too, which is the following. You don't get to talk to a lot of people in life. I don't think many people realize this, Neil. I'll give you an analogy. Let's say you meet somebody new every few days. D new in general, boy, girl, donkey, moose, doesn't matter. right? You meet somebody new every couple of days. So let's say every three days. So in a year, you'll end up meeting, give or take, 100 people. Wait, right? wait, I have, to, I have to stop you. Right. Do, so. do, you, do you meet many donkeys and moose? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just I, mean, I mean, like, I know this is a Canadian podcast, but we, we go to the States and they're going to be, uh, they're going to be like, this guy runs into donkeys. And... 
definitely mooses. It's a different, it's a different place. We all live in okay. Anglos and okay. life is great. Okay. So, so let's say we, we meet give or take a hundred people, right? And that only live... happens in Quebec. For those of you watching, that only happens in Quebec. <laughs> sure. So, right, I'm being very optimistic, right? Yeah. The number is yeah. actually a lot lower. Maybe you're meeting somebody a week. Like, yeah. And I mean anybody. Like, could be yeah. a guy, whatever. So let's say you live for 50 more years from the age that we're at currently. So let's say I live until 75. You live until 85. I got gotcha. you. And you do, like, 50 more years. If you do the math on that, I won't bore you guys too much, but the answer, 50 times 100, is 5,000. So the question I always ask people is never how do I get everyone to like me, but rather who do I want those 5,000 people to be? Out of billions of people, I love your, <laughs> love the support, man. But it's out of the billions of people in the world, okay, I only get to meet 5,000. So who do I want those 5,000 people to be? So I'll give you one strategy that I personally implement that has got me crazy amounts of value, which okay, is- Just before you, before you do that, that is so insightful. That is so interesting. Please say more. I appreciate it, brother. So, yeah. so what I call, by the way, I got to drop in five minutes. Another thing, but anyways, uh, so the key, and we can do this again. This is super fun. But the, the point I want to drive is here's a strategy: Num number the top ten people in your network, top ten close. And, and I don't mean like money or celebrity status or YouTube followers. I mean like the top ten people that you just personally find super interesting. And then what I want you to do is do the one thing that nobody else does. Introduce those 10 people to each other. Make sure your top 10 people in your Rolodex all know each other. But what happens is when all of those 10 people know each other, they go, oh my God, Neil, I just met Susan and Susan's amazing. And then what they do is they start introducing you to their top 10. And that's when shit gets funny. That's when shit gets good. Sorry, not funny, but like really effective. Because, like, I'll give you an example. I met this guy named Sam. He's based in New, New Zealand, one of my closest friends. I never met the guy in person. He was on his podcast, like, 18 months ago when I didn't know what a podcast was. And I talked to him, and he's like, oh, you should totally meet my – I started introducing him to my friends that, that weren't that impressive because I, I didn't have an impressive network two years ago. And he goes, oh, you should meet my friend Billy, who's, like, one of my best friends. So I get on a call with this guy. I'm sitting down with Billy. Remember, remember the context, everyone. I'm like 22, 23. I don't really have a business. I'm kind of lost. I have my YouTube channel that's doing well. I'm still working at IBM. And I meet this guy named Billy. And I'm sitting across from him on a Zoom call. And he's like, what do you do? And I was like, why don't you start? And Billy goes, yeah, I have an award-willing film. Uh, I was a vice president at Tesla. I reported two levels under Elon. And I have this company that I'm starting as well. I have this great podcast. You know, It does X number of downloads. And he's like, what do you do? And I was like, uh, I live in my mom's basement. And we both laughed. And he's like, I think I'm going to like you. But the key I want to drive is I never would have met Billy, who's like my best friend now, if I hadn't made a list of my top 10 people and just introduced those 10 to each other. So yeah. the question everyone needs to ask themselves, whether it's on the topic of women or anything, is how much are you investing in your network? Because trust me, as the quality of your network increases, those people will introduce you to great women. I think that's the better approach. <laughs> And now the women I meet are incredible. And I don't have to make a choice yet. I got 10 years. <laughs> I love it. I love how you, I, I love how you uh, created that and uh, and shared that. And, you know, if, okay, we, we said that we were going to have to watch the time. And I'm amazed at how quickly that went. And we have not even really gotten into Master Talk at all. <laughs> 
I don't know how that happened, but um, okay. So, so here's my commitment to you. I I've got to get you on again. Maybe, maybe we'll do like a live uh, show or something on LinkedIn and we'll, we'll get you just talking about um, on about master talk and, and get to learn about that. But can you tell us just a little bit here in, in these last couple of minutes uh, about master talk and, um, and, and why you've gone down that road? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, so summary, you know, going back to the story we we're saying before. Yeah. So I started working at IBM as a high flying consultant and I had yeah. a great job, loved, loved working there. And yeah. I gave them a six week notice. Life was great there. But I, I think the key was I was missing that sense of purpose, that impact. So that's what led to the YouTube channel. A lot of the stuff that I was teaching earlier in the podcast, that shit's not available for free anywhere. Neil. So a lot of yeah. these technology startups who are early stage can't afford a speech coach. I was like, well, these guys need some in gals, need the information. So I started making them for free while I was working a great job at IBM. And then I had my buddy kind of business partner me, like help me and start producing the stuff professionally. And then the YouTube channel exploded super quickly. And then I had to make a choice, which was, do I want to stay in corporate or do I want to go change the world? And uh, that's when I made the decision to quit. But anyways, in a nutshell, what MasterTalk is, it's a YouTube channel. So if you're someone who's looking for communication tips for free, check that out. Of course, I offer coaching services too, and you can check out my free training. You can just add me on LinkedIn and you can see it there. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So, so people want to get a hold of you, you know, go check you out on uh, master talk. Um, they can, you've got that website. They can find you on LinkedIn. They can find you on YouTube um, and uh, any other means or ways for people to uh to track you down TikTok. that's it no not TikTok. it's mostly youtube master yeah. talk in one word or just add me on linkedin and yeah. you can you can see everything there love it love it well uh brendan thank you so much for coming on the show uh how to how to uh, uh tear apart vcs um you know or um Founders, yeah. how to how to find um how to find a relationship and you know, drop lines, uh, but do that through your friends and get them to drop them for you um, and get them to introduce you to high powered women. Uh, I, I think that was really a warm up to a whole nother level of conversation, but it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Like us, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. We'll see you guys next time on the Leadership to Wealth.